So, the topic is new developments in Christian ethics. The, um, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it's always good to have an opportunity to share something from what occupies your uh, creative uh, thinking, research, and writing, and teaching uh, most of your life. So this has been an area, obviously, that I have focused on and have uh, learned a great deal. You learn uh, in order to qualify to get a terminal degree, and uh, that's a great achievement. Some of you are approaching that gate now in your own life, and, uh, but your, your learning doesn't stop there. And, uh, and so then, after that, basically you are teaching yourself through your research and writing and, and interaction with colleagues, uh, sometimes in professional societies, sometimes on uh, a faculty like this, and this is a great faculty, <clears throat> to engage with and learn uh, from each other. So I have been learning even more every single year, really basically every single day, uh, building on what I have, uh, what I learned in my uh, doctoral study program. So um, there is much that I am glad to share with you. And uh, new developments in Christian ethics obviously is something that matters a good deal in uh, to me uh, because uh, what develops in your field should matter to anybody, whatever the field is that uh, that you are in. Some of you. I've had in seminars and uh, are specializing in the field of Christian ethics. Uh, others of you are not, but ethics and uh, even the academic study of Christian ethics matters to everybody no matter what your discipline is because Christian ethics overlaps everybody else's discipline. And so it matters to you if you are a a biblical scholar, if you're a theological scholar, if you're a historian, and um, even in, uh, if you applied ministry, evangelism, missions, it, it impacts all of us, all of you. Just as your fields impact me, my field impacts you. So I, for that reason, I'm glad to share it, and I, I hope it will be interesting and, and relevant to you. Another reason I appreciate the opportunity to address this particular topic, new developments in Christian ethics, is because I'm in the process of writing what I think is a truly groundbreaking new textbook introducing the field of Christian ethics as a whole. Now, other people have written introductions to Christian ethics, but in my estimate, None of them have really done it right. None of them have really actually introduced the whole field. The, whole, the, the people tend to move into Christian ethics after you know, earning a degree in New Testament or earning a degree in history or earning a degree in systematic theology, and then they move into Christian ethics and, and, and think they can write a textbook introducing the field. But what happens usually is that they consider the field from the lens of their expertise and don't really know that there's more to it than that. And so uh, this will be a groundbreaking book because it really is seeking to introduce seminary students in an introductory course in Christian ethics to the entire field, uh, have a sense of the, the whole field. So, um, and it, that book, um, there are two reasons 
that I think make it groundbreaking besides that, that relate to the topic that we're addressing, new developments. Uh, first, because uh, what I'm writing includes introducing readers to the history of Christian ethics in a text introducing the field. Now you think, duh, that doesn't sound like that's all that groundbreaking, but it is because uh, I am not aware of any book introducing the field that covers the history of it as part of the discipline. There are books on the history of Christian ethics, but there's no mention of the history, uh, maybe in the passing comment on an issue or something, uh, in a book introducing the field. So, uh, so this will be an introduction to the field that includes an introduction to the history as well as the other components of the field. So that will be make it uh, groundbreaking and different. The second reason I think related to this topic that I think the book I'm working on is uh, groundbreaking is because most books that do cover the history of Christian ethics... You know, there are books that do it. They're not, in, they're not introductory texts, but they're books that cover the history of Christian ethics. But they all, for the most part, all, stop at the social gospel movement, which now is a hundred years ago. Uh, the social gospel movement ended with World War I, and uh, a lot has happened in the last hundred years. Uh, there has been some work uh, that touches on recent developments, but all of the ones that do are either woefully brief or spotty or blinded by ideological agendas, and none of them actually try to survey recent developments in an objective way so you get a sense of all of it. So that really needs to be done, and that's one of the things that the textbook I'm doing does. So. Much has happened, as you can imagine, since the collapse of the social gospel movement, which basically was 100 years ago. So I'm asked to deal with new developments, basically, and so I chose the end of the social gospel. I'll start there. And uh, there have been a lot of developments to, uh, to mention, and a lot of developments that are really important uh, for the church, for individual Christian belief and practice, but important for the discipline, the academic discipline referred to as Christian ethics. So the recent developments are important, but although much has happened and although it's important, they're important not just for the purpose of completeness and objectivity, I've mentioned that, but also because the developments in the field of Christian ethics in the last hundred years have been, without question, more radical than has ever occurred before in the history of Christianity. So, it's really important to understand recent developments in the field of Christian ethics. Now, I was asked some months ago, I guess maybe more than that, How was it six months ago, to uh, suggest some reading for... PhD students uh, to sort of prep for this uh, lecture. I'm not going to give you a test on it, and you're not going to get credit on it, but hey, it's an academic institution, so assign some reading. So 
I thought, okay, what's the purpose of it? Well, since my purpose is to cover the developments, I thought, well, uh, I suggested these two books. Um, and I've heard some feedback of, why did Dr. Heimbach have us read this one? <laughs> I know you like this one. Some of you maybe thought it was dense, but you, know, you felt it was friendly. This one shocked many of you, as it should. But the reason I assigned these two books, since I had to assign some reason, the purpose of this is to acquaint you with recent developments. And so I thought reading at the two extreme ends would make sense. So this actually is a work being written for Christians about Christian ethics by somebody who is very, I would call non-Christian, but he's claiming to be Christian and redefining Christian ethics for Christians uh, in this book in a very shocking and radically non-biblical way. And, uh, and this is a, a very highly intellectual, uh, careful scholar who is not only a Christian, but a very committed evangelical uh, Christian. And, uh, and so uh, that just gives you a taste of the extremes that are being written and offered in the field uh, currently. So that's why I had those two books, just in case somebody wanted to, wanted to know why I signed them. First of all, let's talk about the ethics of contemporary Catholicism. Catholic moral theologians have written a lot and have worked in the area of what I call Christian ethics for, for centuries. But uh, a lot of the histories of Christian ethics completely skip over uh, Catholic work. Uh, either because they think moral theology isn't part of Christian ethics or because they're Protestants and just are unaware of Catholics. Catholics tend to ignore the evangelicals. The evangelicals tend to ignore the Catholics. Um, and so I think it's important, since they have contributed to the field and in a very influential way, to let readers know what the Catholics have contributed. And this is focusing on recent Catholic developments in, in Catholic moral theology, uh, basically from 1891 to the present. Um, so Catholic ethics today, contemporary Catholic ethics, still takes the syncretic approach that was formulated by scholastics in the Middle Ages. That's no surprise, I don't think. Most of you probably uh, would guess that. Uh, and that syncretic approach was one that mixes theology with Aristotelian natural law philosophy. And, uh, and that still is uh, a significant characteristic of even contemporary Catholic moral theology. But in recent years, Catholic moral theologians have explored other possibilities as well. They still continue a lot of natural law theology and so forth that they've built on the past, but they've been exploring other possibilities, some drawing from Marxist ideology and uh, others stressing more reliance on Scripture. So, obviously pulling different ways. Uh, major characteristics of contemporary Catholic ethics or Catholic moral theology uh, 
would include defending the relevance of universal norms in the face of a culture which is denying universal norms, uh, but along with more openness to contextual, contextual differences affecting ethical assessment, and that there are some aspects of moral judgment and behavior that may have contextual uh, variations uh, to them. So more openness to that while defending universal norms. Um, along with accepting religious liberty as a universal right. This is actually monumental, uh, a monumental change for the Catholic Church, which always thought that uh, very strongly uh, through the Middle Ages, through the Protestant Reformation, uh, that error has no rights. So there are certainly no moral rights. You don't have any moral right to be sinful according, you know, and uh, see where that makes sense. But how do you deal with that when it comes to the responsibility of government in relationship to the church, in relationship to people of various religions? And um, with Vatican II, they made a monumental change with their attitude towards religious liberty in uh, formally accepting religious liberty as something the Catholic Church affirms in relationship to governments around the world uh, as a universal right. So uh, good on that. And another big change uh, or characteristic has been elevating scripture over tradition, faith over reason, and Christ over the church. Uh, Now, they still believe in tradition and reason and the church and the authority of the church and so forth. Uh, but rather than seeing the church over Christ and reason over faith and tradition over Scripture, there has been a trend toward elevating uh, the priority of Scripture over tradition, elevating the role of faith over reason, and elevating the standing and role of Christ over the church, not the other way around in Catholic moral theology. Well, uh, those seem to be fairly uh, affirmative developments, Let me just mention some of the weaknesses in contemporary Catholic ethics. Um, Aiming for social perfection while still acknowledging finitude and fallenness. Uh, Another is uh, division over whether Christian ethics is uniquely Christian or is an ethic of everybody. And, uh, And how can it be universal and Christian at the same time? A, um, another weakness has been division over whether moral theologians should be allowed to criticize positions held by the Vatican. <laughs> and uh, leading to uh, what I'm listing as the, uh, the last, maybe most important weaknesses, you could mention the other ones maybe as causes or evidences of, but um, in the Catholic Church, popes issue encyclicals which are authoritative teachings of the hierarchy, particularly of the Pope, that are meant to be received and accepted by the laity on how to think about various theological uh, truths, including moral issues. And uh, in the last hundred years, Popes have issued encyclicals contradicting one another. 
Now, if there was a Catholic here, you might want to say, wouldn't like the idea of contradiction. Uh, try to soften that a little bit. But, uh, you know, that's what, I, that's what it looks like to me. Uh, with one encyclical calling for less government and then a follow-on encyclical from a succeeding calling for more government. Uh, one pope affirming private property and opposing redistribution, and then a follow-on pope affirming redistribution and opposing private property. Uh, one pope commending free enterprise and criticizing socialism, and then a follow-on pope commending socialism and criticizing free enterprise. And uh, this is for my colleague, uh, Dr. Ashford. Uh, one encyclical uh, endorsing just war, Ethics in uh, the modern world rather than pacifism and then uh, to be countered by an encyclical by a later pope endorsing pacifism rather than just war. So um, the popes now, when encyclicals are not quite ex cathedra, so they can end up uh, changing uh, Catholic thought or disagreeing with each other, but it's pretty close because it's coming from the Pope, which if he was sitting in the right place, you know, can't ever be changed. So those are rather radical differences in the ethical thinking of the Catholic Church that has caused strains uh, among Catholic moral theologians. Uh, moral theologians that have, have been favored by the Vatican include John Courtney Murray, not to be confused with John Murray, who is the Protestant um, theologian who uh, wrote a very influential book in biblical theology, uh, same, same name other than the middle one, and uh, same, uh, same generation as well, interestingly. Uh, so John Courtney Murray, the Catholic, Carl uh, Rahner, Bernard uh, Haring, and Joseph Fuchs uh, have been uh, theologians that the uh, Vatican has uh, supported, agreed with, and favored. Uh, other Catholic moral theologians have been opposed and disciplined by the Vatican, including Hans Kuhn and uh, Charles Koran. Well, let's talk about another major development in uh, the last hundred years, and that's the ethics of neo-orthodoxy. Uh, neo-orthodoxy, the ethics of neo-orthodoxy, is another major development that has arisen uh, in the field of Christian ethics after the collapse of the social gospel movement. And uh, this was a movement among non-evangelical Protestants, so as Protestants, but non-evangelical, who, due to modern atrocities, returned to affirming how fallenness and finitude make social perfections impossible. Um, but while the neo-Orthodox theologians uh, returned to the relevance of Scripture in Christian ethics, and reaffirming the doctrine of sin and finitude, they took a subjective approach that failed to recognize the objective authority of Scripture. And so the, in affirming the ultimacy of the Word of God, the Word of God ended up being something that you could experience while reading Scripture, but it was actually the feeling you had in your heart when you read it and uh, that's subjective. So uh, the strengths of neo-Orthodox ethics uh, from a biblical and evangelical point of view are that it denied that the kingdom of God 
is reducible to visions of human self-perfection, which is what the social gospel did. Uh, it recognized how finitude and fallenness are realities that we cannot overcome ourselves. God can overcome that, but we can't through our own efforts. Uh, and we're not going to do it until there's no sin in the world, and that's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. Um, Another strength is they refuse to elevate philosophy or science over the Word of God. They affirm the Word of God transcends human science and human philosophy. Uh, New Orthodox ethics held that Christian ethics is universal. It, they, it's a universal truth. It's a universal ethic. It's not only universal, it is Christocentric. More Christocentric than a, some contemporary evangelicals I know treat Christian ethics. Um, that is, they denied it is a particular ethic or an anthropocentric ethic. And they held that Christian ethics is the only true, real ethics there is, which means other religious traditions, philosophies, are all idolatrous and false. And those are the terms that they put on it. There's only one true right and wrong. And that's what God says. Okay, that, that was affirmed and uh, carried forward in, by neo-Orthodox uh, neo moral theologians. Uh, weaknesses in neo-Orthodox ethics uh, is uh, that it distinguished the Bible from the Word of God, uh, didn't distinguish God from personal feelings, affirmed transcendence in a way that denied fixed principles. You can read that in Bonhoeffer. Uh, he affirms transcendence, but there's no fixed principles. And... Um, affirmed spirituality in a way that elevated subjectivity over objectivity and elevated experiencing God over obeying God as uh, encountering God obviates obedience. So they open to the possibility that God might require you to do something that disobeys what the Bible requires you to do. So those are weaknesses. And major figures in uh, the development of neo-Orthodox ethics in Christian the field of Christian ethics, would be Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Reinhold Niebuhr, and Paul Ramsey. That leads us to another uh, development that rose in the field of Christian ethics out of the ashes of the social gospel. Um, and that is something I am calling the ethics of modern liberalism. This is an umbrella term. I'm using it as an umbrella term to cover a lot of factions uh, and developments out of it. But uh, uh, there, you know, the neo-Orthodox took a more, they headed in a more um, conservative direction. Uh, they didn't go all the way to historic orthodoxy. That's why it's called neo-Orthodoxy. Uh, and there were biblically faithful scholars, evangelicals as well. Uh, we'll get to them in a moment. But uh, there, were, there was uh, a movement uh, coming out of the ashes of the social gospel that headed in an even more obviously liberal direction. And uh, so I'm calling this uh, modern liberalism. And it, so the key thing about modern liberalism and all its factions is that it carried forward the zeal that the social gospel had for human perfectibility. Okay, so neo-Orthodox ethics did not. You, that's, un, that's impossible. You can't perfect uh, uh, human 
behavior or human nature or human social relationships. You can make them better, but you can't make them perfect because we are sinners and because we are finite. But modern liberalism went the other way and they carried forward the zeal the social gospel uh, movement had lit for human perfectibility, both individually and socially. Now, the movement had two main factions, at least initially two main factions. One faction in the modern uh, development of modern liberalism and Christian ethics was uh, Protestant, and one faction was Catholic. Both of these assumed human perfectibility by education, self-effort, and organizing, and both raised a single ideal to the place of ultimacy, that is, to the place of God, and therefore relativized all ethical judgment to that single ideal. And that's the thing to look for. What is the single ideal being used to redefine everything else? Because your ethic follows from what you worship, and that's just a way to reference your ethic follows from whatever you start with is ultimate. And so all the factions start with, a, with an ideal and then redefine or define Christian ethical understanding by that single ideal. The Protestant faction in modern liberal Christian ethics developed what's known as situation ethics. Uh, this was an approach prioritizing individual feelings of sentimental love uh, and denied everything or denied anything else mattered other than what that sentiment uh, told you or guided you to do. Uh, in the process, denying objective rules and principles even exist, much less matter. And, uh, and actually, they just made it clearer and more obvious, but it was carrying it on something that was inherited from neo-orthodoxy, denying the objectivity of rules and principles. Uh, it was just carried forward by, the, uh, by situation ethics. And the main figures there uh, in the Protestant faction of modern liberal ethics is uh, Anders Nygren and Joseph Fletcher, who wrote a volume most of you probably have read, if not have heard about situation ethics. The other major faction of this uh, modern liberalism is uh, the Catholic faction. And uh, the Catholic faction in modern liberalism developed liberation ethics. And um, what liberation ethics did was uh, prioritize versions of liberation uh, from various social inequalities. Uh, it ended up, of course, denying personal responsibility by blaming social structures for the wrong of inequality and claiming Christian ethics was a matter of freeing people from those inequalities. Now, neither of the... Okay, the major figures of the Catholic faction would be uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and uh, James Cohn. Gutierrez uh, blamed economic inequality and Cohn blamed racial inequality, but they're both forms of liberation ethics. So you have the Protestant figures, Nigren and Fletcher, the Catholic figures, Gutierrez and Cohn. All of these, despite their variations and, uh, you know, elevating sentimental love, elevating economic equality, elevating racial equality to the ultimate norm, 
Uh, neither of these factions or versions of the factions started with the biblical text. Now, they, they ended up going back to the biblical text and reinterpreting by the value they started off with and then read back into uh, to revise what the text meant to fit their, their starting ideal. Both started, however, again, not with the biblical text, but with a humanly conceived ideal by which it redefines sin, salvation, and the mission of the church. Uh, both factions, Protestant and Catholic, reconceive Christ, reconceive the Bible, and reconceived especially the kingdom of God in anthropocentric, that means man-centered terms, rather than as authorities in their own right to which human life must conform. And since the rise of uh, these two factions, there have been uh, a slew of further developments out of the uh, liberation uh, ethical faction. Um, the, well, first of all, the situation ethics has led to uh, sen uh, a, sentiment, a sentimentality or a sentimentalism, different versions of that. And uh, liberation uh, ethics has spawned a slew of versions focusing on different social comparisons like uh, economics, uh, sexual, and, uh, and racial. And you see that in the chart. Well, we're going to move on and talk about the ethics of contemporary pacifism. Now, there have been pacifists in the church ever since the early church. And uh, through the Middle Ages and through the Reformation and, uh, and on. So uh, I'm aware of that. I'm referring, though, to a contemporary movement in Christian ethics, a movement uh, that is characterized by pacifism that... Um, I've had a struggle on where to basically list it. The main theologians associated with the contemporary development of Christian pacifism are clearly in, in the line of modern liberalism. So we could look at it as a third development in modern uh, liberalism from uh, situation ethics, liberation ethics, uh, pacifist ethics. But I treat it separately because there are... Uh, there are some scholars in, uh, who are uh, promoting pacifism today and espousing uh, pacifism today, so they certainly are contemporary, that are not uh, liberal in the classic sense of rejecting biblical authority. And we already, somebody mentioned Daniel Carroll is coming, uh, and you can tell him when he's here, he's a pacifist, uh, but he's not a liberal, okay? So I understand that. But uh, uh, so... I'm referring to a movement that is primarily a liberal movement, but there are Christian pacifists uh, in the current generation who are not liberal. And so really, I guess, they come from, uh, they see themselves as continuing an earlier stream, but not the liberal stream that I'm talking about. So I'm going to talk about this uh, liberal stream that is, uh, in some ways, a third development of modern liberal Christianity um, because it, too, carries forward the zeal of the social gospel movement for human perfectibility. The, uh, 
So while acknowledging that there are contemporary pacifist Christians who are not liberal, most who have been writing in the field are coming up with ideas which are very much in the liberal, modern liberal trajectory in Christian ethics. Um, so whether claiming to follow or to revise what the Bible teaches, contemporary Christian pacifists do have similarities to modern liberals. And so even if you are an evangelical pacifist, as I would guess that um, my friend Daniel Carroll would consider himself to be, uh, I think there is a danger of being blind to the influence of similarities with modern liberalism. Uh, the similarities are thinking that we can perfect ourselves, being unwilling to wait for the second coming to realize the social side of God's kingdom, uh, treating Christian ethics as nothing more than pursuing an ultimate social ideal. And because of this, those particularly who are truly uh, characterized that way, they, like modern liberals, reduce Christian ethics to nothing more than... Senti you know, they, too, like modern liberals, reduce Christian ethics to nothing more than an ultimate social ideal. You know, others to sentimentality and liberation, but contemporary Christian pacifists reducing it to nothing more than nonviolence. And uh, the best examples of that are uh, John Howard Yoder, James William McClendon, uh, and Stanley Harawas, who, uh, if you read his book that he used as an introductory text for years at uh, Duke Divinity School, Introducing Christian Ethics, he introduces pacifism isn't just a part of Christian ethics, it's what defines all Christian ethics for, for, uh, for Howard Was. And that is what uh, I'm looking at, and that's what I'm critiquing particularly in contemporary, contemporary Christian pacifism, is, is the raising of a social ideal in an anthropocentric way and redefining all Christian ethics by that social ideal. So um, that's why I put it in the, uh, in the liberal stream. Well... That leads us then to the most recent development on the liberal side and the most extreme development in the field, academic field of Christian ethics, uh, that you got a taste of reading, reading this book. And uh, it's what I call the ethics of paganized Christianity, and that's not a pejorative term. Let's put them down and call them a nasty name. That's the term they use for themselves, not the earlier ones, but the ones who are the leaders now are openly espousing paganism as better Christianity. So, um, believe it or not. So, paganized ethics, like I said, is the most recent, most extreme development in the liberal stream of, and yet they're still calling it Christian ethics, that clearly rejects historic orthodoxy. So, uh, I mean, just the title of, the, of this book by Eugene Rogers, uh, Sexuality and the Christian Body. So this is for Christians. This is defining an ethic for Christians. Um, but it's very paganized. It's sexualized, but in a pagan sense. So we are in the stream here, despite some differences perhaps, uh, are in the... Uh, 
evangelical side of the field of Christian ethics, but there are other contributors to the field in the academic sense that extend all the way to folks like Eugene Rogers uh, and others like him who are espousing a paganized version of Christian ethics for Christians. Now, like other developments in the liberal stream, paganized Christian ethics rejects or redefines the ethical authority of Scripture, minimizes or redefines sin, reduces spirituality to material experience or sensation, identifies the flesh or feelings with the Word of God, and redefines salvation as self-perfection. Proponents claim that pagan ethics, especially in regard to sex, is not contrary to Christianity and instead is a better version of the same thing, if you accept what they say. Uh, That's their truth claim, or shall we call it a lie? But they're claiming to paganize Christian ethics, and they want Christians to accept it as better Christian ethics. So there's obvious criticism, but the main ones are that it denies the ethical authority of Scripture. It denies historic Christian doctrine. It treats sexual arousal as self-deification. For instance, I don't know if any of you noticed, in this one, uh, Eugene Rogers is claiming that when you are experiencing sexual arousal, that is the Holy Spirit's present in you. And if you're telling people not to pursue the sexual desires brought by that arousal, you are intervening with the latest movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. Yet you are also preventing people from being saved. Because you can't be saved unless you pursue sex the way that the Spirit manifests in yourself. That's pagan. That's like Baal worship. That's like Ashra, you know, having sex at Asherah poles in the Bible. But it's in contemporary Christian ethics. Um, so not only does it treat sexual arousal as self-deification, it reverses biblical notions of sin and salvation, purity and corruption, right and wrong. Uh, There's a verse in Isaiah that condemns us for treating darkness as light and light as darkness and calling white black and calling black white. Uh, That is no more evident than in paganized Christian ethics. So sin is redefined as salvation and salvation is redefined as sin. Purity is redefined as corrupting and corruption is redefined as purifying. Right is defined as wrong and wrong is defined as right, a complete reversal of the biblical categories, the biblical notions. And figures um, of contemporary paganized Christian, uh, Christian ethics would be James Nelson in Body Theology, Virginia Ramey Mullicott in Sensuous Spirituality, Rosemary Radford Ruther in Redemption in Christian Feminism, uh, Eugene Rogers, Sexuality in the Christian Body, and Rita uh, Nakasoma Brock in Journeys of the Heart, a Christology of Erotic Power. wonder what that is about. Um, which brings us to developments in evangelical ethics or evangelicalism. Um, evangelicals have not been sitting on the sidelines. Liberals don't usually read what we publish, but the evangelicals... Uh, are, now, some have been very, you know, uh, non-critical and uh, shallow, but uh, 
most, I would say, characteristically, evangelicals have been very good scholars and very thoughtful and have contributed a lot to the field of Christian ethics in the last hundred years. Um, so this is the other side to, you know, maybe Catholic ethics is uh, in the middle, maybe neo-Orthodox is somewhat in the middle, but uh, this is the other side to the crazy developments that have been getting crazier and crazier and weirder on the liberal side. So this is, in comparison to that, the conservative side, not as radical or exciting and therefore maybe not as dramatic, but important nevertheless. Now, just to be clear, evangelical ethics is built on inherited Augustinianism, Calvinism, Lutheranism, Wesleyanism, Puritanism, Pietism, all of these uh, earlier theological movements have influenced the way evangelicals think about uh, ethics. Um, But evangelical ethics contemporary has been influenced as well in some ways, some some in in a way that is they're aware of, and others maybe in ways they're not aware of, by the realism of neo-Orthodox, uh, neo-Orthodoxy with regard to social uh, ethics. Uh, now, I think the realism of, I mean, the influence of neo-Orthodox ethics has influenced the liberal stream in one way and influenced the conservative stream in another. Liberals picked up the subjectivism of neo-orthodoxy, turning it into situationism, sentimentalism, various sexualisms, which ultimately have led to paganized Christian ethics, just carrying that subjectivity on. But evangelicals have picked up the social realism of neo-orthodoxy, embracing the way ethicists like Bart, Bonhoeffer, Niebuhr, and Ramsey held to the necessity of recognizing human fallenness and finitude and how that limits uh, social perfectibility and make social perfection impossible. Um, but of course, evangelicals have picked up that influence because it aligns with scripture and essential doctrines of the faith. But while evangelicals all accept the authority of scripture and essential doctrines of the faith, we do not all agree on a number of things. We do not all, evangelical ethicists, Uh, contemporary ethicists uh, do not agree on whether to treat reason, sentiment, or experience as authority supplementing Scripture or not, do not agree on whether to continue rejecting or maybe to reaffirm uh, the Catholic view of natural law, and uh, whether to reject or to employ postmodernism in Christian ethics. Evangelicals agree on many applied issues, such as defending the sanctity of human life and opposing abortion, defending the man-woman form of marriage and opposing same-sex marriage, defending binary sexuality and opposing the normalizing of sex between persons of the same sex, sex with children, sex with animals, and transsexual behaviors, uh, and opposing adultery, pornography, racism, slavery, human trafficking, gambling, alcohol abuse, and drug abuse. But evangelicals are not united on other applied ethical issues, such as allowing divorce for adultery or desertion, allowing lying to save innocent human life. Uh, We don't agree uh, on whether fixed gender roles apply in the home, church, or society. We don't agree on whether spanking is a form of 
child discipline. We don't agree on whether capitalism is something required or should be discontinued. Uh, We don't agree on whether forgiven sins of any kind should continue to affect the eligibility for ordination. So if somebody was divorced and is repentant and forgiven, does that still disqualify them from being ordained in your church? Uh, Evangelicals don't agree on that. Uh, And we disagree on whether to vote for flawed but comparably better political candidates, which uh, disagreement was manifested uh, on this campus uh, in the last presidential election. So um, let's talk about some trends in contemporary evangelical ethics. I've just described where we agree and disagree and where influences and so forth, but where are things going? Uh, Some evangelical ethicists today rely on Scripture alone without bringing in philosophy uh, and those sorts of things. So O'Donovan, myself, uh, Dr. David Jones, and Wayne Grudem would fall in this camp. Uh, Others mix philosophical theories with revelation. Uh, Some who do this are Norman Geisler, uh, Dennis Hollinger, and Scott Ray in their books. Uh, Some evangelicals are embracing the way Catholics mix natural law with Scripture. Now, this has not been traditional. The traditional Protestant reaction has been to reject that. But in the current generation of evangelical ethicists, a number of younger evangelicals are saying, well, maybe it actually, uh, maybe we went too far. Maybe we should really uh, learn from the Catholic uh, way of mixing natural law philosophy with Scripture. And Stephen Grabiel in Rediscovering the Natural Law and Reformed uh, Theology is an example of that, and Craig Boyd's uh, book, A Shared Morality, a Narrative Defense of Natural Law, as well is an example of that. Uh, Some evangelicals are accommodating narrative theory in how they approach Christian ethics. Uh, Stanley Grenz in The Moral Quest uh, did that, and Brian McLaren in Everything Must Change, A New Kind of Christianity, um, uh, those are two books, Everything Must Change, which was published in 2009, and A New Kind of Christianity, which was published in 2011, uh, are adopting a na- narrative theory for their uh, analysis and approach to Christian ethics. Uh, and some evangelicals, claiming still to be evangelicals, are even uh, seeking to accommodate postmodernism in how they approach Christian ethics. And... Uh, a book by Nullins and Michener, The Matrix of Christian Ethics, uh, Integrating Philosophy and Moral Theology in a Postmodern Context, which came out uh, in 2010, is, uh, is doing that. And they're claiming to be evangelicals. And then there are some who were raised in conservative evangelical churches, went to conservative evangelical schools, uh, have been members of the Evangelical Theological Society, and have since rejected their identity as evangelicals and now no longer uh, uh, don't affirm themselves as evangelicals. Uh, So some uh, former evangelicals who have become post-evangelical, and I'll list some who have passed away, uh, starting with Lewis Smedes in uh, Choices, Making Right Decisions in a Complex World, Glenn Stassen, uh, A New Vision of Christ and Culture, Authentic Transformation, Jim Wallace in his book On God's Side and in his more recent book, The Uncommon Good, 
And uh, David Gushy, uh, a former colleague of mine who used to advise the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, now no longer is a member of ETS, and overtly denies biblical inerrancy, uh, and has produced a very seductive book called The Sacredness of Human Life, and then later on uh, changing our mind how he doesn't agree with evangelical theology or the evangelical view of scriptural authority in his ethic uh, now that he's uh, grown out of it, I guess. Uh, so that's post examples of uh, post-evangelicals. Um, major figures in uh, contemporary evangelical ethics, C.S. Lewis, Cornelius Van Til, John Murray, the Protestant, Helmut Tielicke, Jacques Ellul, Francis Schaeffer, Carl F.H. Henry, uh, John M. Frame, Oliver O'Donovan, Gilbert Melander, and Wayne Grudem. Lesser figures, uh, Paul Feinberg, William Edgar, John Feinberg, Dennis Hollinger, myself, uh, Scott Ray, David Jones, uh, the uh, two, two David Joneses, David C. Jones, who's the Presbyterian, and, and our David Jones, uh, who's Southern Baptist, uh, my colleague Mark Lederbach, uh, J. Allen Branch, who teaches at uh, Midwestern, uh, C. Ben Mitchell, uh, Kenneth Magnuson teaches at Southern, uh, Matt Arbo, uh, who was at Midwestern and uh, now is at the University of Oklahoma, uh, Russ Moore, uh, who is president of the ERLC, and Andrew Walker, who is uh, on his staff with him. So these are making contributions to the field of Christian ethics and writing books that uh, are having an impact, um, but I don't list them as rising to the level of a major figure, at least yet. Here are some conclusions in bringing this to a close. The history of Christian ethics consists of responding over time to many different trends, and I've mentioned a number that have arisen in the last hundred years. But previous developments in the field academically of Christian ethics have come from variations in a Christian's approach major doctrines. Uh, you know, between legalists and libertarians, between Catholics and Protestants, between Calvinists and Lutherans, between Presbyterians and Baptists, ethical unionists, that is, those who believe that there's a single ethic throughout the Bible, um, and then ethical dualists who believe there's one ethic in the Old Testament, another ethic in the New Testament, uh, between hierarchicalists and congregationalists, between transformationalists and quietists, between universalists and communitarians, between idealists and realists, um, and between those viewing politics as salvific and those fearing it as demonic. Uh, these have caused different tr developments and uh, variations in Christian ethics in the past. But my observation is that the history of Christian ethics as a field of academic study has reached a new stage that uh, most developments now are not coming from variations in how we view and approach or prioritize major doctrines. Most developments now come from how the field is divided into very contrary and increasingly contrary streams, generally referred to as liberal and conservative. But what's separating the two streams in Christian ethics reduces to following the word of God or following the words of men. Uh, it reduces to... Uh, either walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh, to use the language of Paul in Galatians 5.16. That is, those who are defining Christian ethics by the flesh and those who are defining Christian ethics 
in faithful historic orthodoxy in line with the Spirit. Not with the ooey-gooey feeling that we have, but the Spirit in line with the Word of God, which is objectively fixed by the Word of God, meaning Scripture. So what divides Christian ethics now, the field, I am saying will continue, it's been growing exponentially and more and more fractured and more and more radically separated in the last hundred years. And it's going to con- my prediction is that it's going to continue those trajectories. That division is going to continue to grow and grow and grow until it divides the entire world and leads to persecution. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus warned us that would happen, and Paul warned us it would happen as well, Matthew 24, 10 through 13, and 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 6. And we know from Scripture, which is the Word of God and doesn't change, that in fact, Jesus wins this contest. And in fact, what we are called to be and to do as practicing Christians, and particularly as scholars, whether Christian ethicists or theologians or Christian ministers, what we are called to do is to endure. Matthew 10, 22 and Mark 13, 13. We aren't called to conquer the world. We aren't called to get rid of the radical developments. We're called to endure. We're called to be faithful. We're called to not succumb and give in. Just be faithful. So what does that mean I'm required to do and you're required to do in terms of the future developments in the field of Christian ethics and how it's impacting the training of ministers and how it's impacting Christian behavior and interaction with the culture? It means we must keep teaching Christian ethics aligned to what the Word of God says and do that regardless of mounting pressures to compromise. And the pressures to compromise are mounting. Regardless of how unpopular we become, and we're getting increasingly marginalized, regardless of how viciously we're slandered, ridiculed, or attacked, and those are becoming more evident and more shrill, and ultimately regardless of what it costs even if we lose our lives. But we're going to lose our jobs before we lose our lives. And the publishers won't publish our books. But we must keep teaching Christian ethics aligned to the Word of God regardless. And we know this too, that if we face opposition, and we will, we have to remember first that it's temporary and won't last. No matter how hard it feels at the moment. The opposition and the discomfort and the risk is temporary and won't last. And we know this too, that it will, if we endure and are faithful, it will be worth it in the end because God's truth doesn't change. So in closing this review of recent developments in Christian ethics, my assessment is that recent developments in the last hundred years in Christian ethics are indeed shocking. But they point towards the last days and the soon return of Jesus Christ. And we need to take comfort in that.